The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. If you see any form of religious activity that is praised by the world, which is honored by the unbelieving world, and which gets well written up in the newspapers, you may be reasonably sure that it is not a biblical spiritual movement, but that it has in it that which flatters and complements the ego and makes it possible for the world to live at peace with it. But if there is the yieldedness of the soul to the full message of gospel truth, the world will always move away from it as the world moved away from Jesus Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Into Christ's Sufferings. For many teenagers, nothing is more important than to be popular with their peers. But as we mature in Christ and seek to please God, we must care less and less about the world's opinion of us. The Bible says, They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It does not say, They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall be prosperous and popular. Are you seeking friendship with the world or the approval of God? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Into Christ's Sufferings. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for the grace that saved us and for the life that was given to us in Christ. May we know what it is today to feed upon thy word and to grow in the knowledge of thy truth. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're working together in the epistle to the Romans and come today to the sixth chapter of Romans and the third verse. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, the Greek word baptizo in its literal meaning signifies immersion. In its spiritual meaning, it sets forth the submergence of an individual into Christ and the complete identification of the believer into every phase of Christ's eternal work. The baptism of the Holy Spirit includes identification with the Lord Jesus into his suffering. They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, we read in Second Timothy. And the world thinks itself good until it is forced to stand beside the righteousness of God in Christ 
and then it will hate whatever being or personality or idea forced it to the truthful comparison. The more we are like the Lord Jesus Christ, the more the world will see the contrast and the more the world will hate us. When we say that we are identified into the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, we must not think in terms of his vicarious sufferings for sin. Those sufferings were borne by him on the cross for six hours only. We shall see that we are identified into the fruits of that death. But the sufferings which he underwent there were all his own, and no one can share them with him in any degree whatsoever. But there were sufferings which he took in himself before he ever went to the cross in which we have a part. Perhaps it would be best to stop for a moment and analyze the three types of sufferings which Jesus Christ experienced while here on the earth. And then we shall better understand the nature of the life we are called to live for him. First of all, Jesus Christ suffered as a man. This was a suffering which had existed upon this earth ever since sin entered with the fall of Adam. Men had been hungry. The Lord Jesus was hungry. Men had been thirsty. The Savior cried, I thirst. Men had been filled with sorrow. Jesus wept. Men had been worn with fatigue. Jesus was so exhausted that he fell asleep in the boot on Galilee and was not awakened by all the howling of a fierce storm. The tears and wounds of Adam and all his sons had existed long before the Incarnation. This natural suffering of the human race was a suffering that the Lord Jesus took upon himself as a part of his wearing the garb of man's flesh. He knew the physical wants, and he knew more than any man the loneliness of being despised and rejected of men. He could say, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. When every man went to his own house, we read that Jesus had to go to the Mount of Olives. There he slept alone, on the doorstep of heaven. Now there was nothing new about this type of suffering. This was suffering as man. It came through the incarnation, and it was a suffering that he picked up and carried along with all of us. But there was a second type of suffering in the life of Christ, or rather in his death, which is most often thought of when we mention his sufferings. These were his greatest sufferings, which we speak of as his finished sufferings. These sufferings were from God. We will never understand the death of Jesus Christ unless we realize that it was God the Father who put the Son to death. Isaiah tells it in his prophecy. In Isaiah 53, we read, It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, there we have the heart essence of the death of Christ. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, his death was a planned death. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We will see in our next study the meaning of our identification with Jesus Christ in his death for us. But there is a sense in which we must understand here that we had no part in that suffering. His substitutionary sufferings were borne by him alone. Even God the Father turned away from Christ in those dark hours when he was upon the cross. 
These sufferings began at nine o'clock in the morning when they nailed him to the cross. It was only thus that God could reach the Holy One of Israel to inflict death upon him. Back in the Old Testament law, there was written the mandate, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. In the New Testament, this verse is taken and expanded to comprehend the curse of Christ by the Heavenly Father. Christ, we read in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Now when the Lord Jesus was taken by wicked men and nailed to the cross, he became a technical violator of the divine law, and all of the wrath of God flowed out upon him. When the six hours of suffering from God were ended, the Lord Jesus yielded up his spirit and died. That ended the vicarious suffering for sin forever. Never again will there be any suffering for the sins of another. The Lord Jesus completed that for all of us forever. The third type of the sufferings of Christ were the sufferings which he bore from man. They were sufferings for righteousness' sake. They are sufferings that are not yet finished and which we must share with him. It is of this unfinished sufferings of Christ that the apostle writes to the Colossian church saying, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Let us summarize the three types of suffering in Christ. We find first that he suffered as a man through the weakness of human flesh in a suffering which had previously existed and which he lifted and carried as we must carry it. Secondly, he suffered from God for sin and entirely alone. Thirdly, he suffered from man for righteousness' sake, and this is a suffering which we must pick up and carry with him. It is into these, the unfinished sufferings of Christ, that we are identified by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Christian who determines to go on with God in the work of the Holy Spirit steps into that godliness in Christ Jesus, which brings the hatred of the world. Let's look at it first in the Lord Jesus himself. The first manifestation of the hatred of the carnal mind toward the Lord Jesus was on the occasion of his first public ministry of the word in Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Jesus had already performed several miracles, and his fame had spread through the countryside. He went into the synagogue, we read in the fourth of Luke, in Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He read from the prophet Isaiah and announced that he himself was the object of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. The crowd whispered that he had a nice delivery. They wondered at the graciousness of the words that proceeded out of his mouth, and they asked if, if this were not the carpenter's son. Jesus tore the mask away in one sentence. You've heard about the miracles, he said, and you've come here to see a wonder performed before your curious eyes. Well, he proceeded, a prophet is not without honor save in his own country. And the crowd stirred restlessly. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, and therein lay the beginning of danger. The crowd in Caesar's day and ours wants nothing more than bread and circuses. The last thing they want is to hear truth. Truth will come in and strip them naked. They will stand before God, realizing their own want, and they will hate the one that brings the word which strips them to their nakedness. 
The truth that Jesus told them was that God was a God of grace and that salvation was by grace. He illustrated the teaching with two stories and then the crowd was ready to murder him. He reminded them that when God performed a miracle of sustenance in the days of Elijah, he passed over all the Jews of the covenant and fed a Gentile widow. He did it in order to show that grace is not given because of any claim, but only because of the desire of the one who gives. If there were any claim, the gift would be no more of grace. And at this point in the narrative, there is a seeming silence, as though the crowd were not quite sure of what he was driving at. But he continued and made it so plain that there could be no misunderstanding. He reminded them that in the days of Elisha, God healed one leper and one only. Jesus says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now the point of the story lies in the fact that Naaman was the Hitler of his day. He had marched the armies of Syria through Palestine, had burned their cities, killed their men, and taken the women captive. God intervened to save that particular man from his leprosy. It was a signal example of the fact that no man has a claim on God. The Lord had made certain promises to his own people, but he will not allow them to take advantage of those promises and to act presumptuously as though they owned God. God will always act in grace. Now this was enough for the crowd. They were filled with wrath and they thrust Jesus from the synagogue and took him to the brow of a hill upon which the city was built in order to cast him over the cliff. Jesus allowed himself to be carried to the point where their intentions were fully manifested beyond any possible explanation, and then he exercised his supernatural powers and passed through the midst of them to go his way. It was not yet the hour of his death, but it was the hour of the manifestation of the fact that the carnal mind is enmity against God. This smoldering hatred against Christ grew and grew. The leaders of the people held a council against him, how they might destroy him, we read in Matthew 12. Their fury at him became more and more manifest as the days went by. They turned against their officers who had been sent to arrest him. Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, never man spake like this man. And then answered them the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. And when Nicodemus attempted to state the simple principle of civil liberties, his colleagues turned against him. This man said, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? And they answered him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And this, of course, was quite a lie, because if you study the Old Testament, you discover that there were indeed several prophets from Galilee. The hatred of the religious leaders against the Lord Jesus was even vented upon a poor beggar who had been born blind, but who had been the object of the grace of Christ. The last verse of the 8th of John shows the leaders with stones in their hands, attempting to kill Christ. And again he hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. And the next verse in chapter 9 and verse 1 finds the Lord Jesus Christ approaching a man who had been blind from birth. The man did not approach Christ or even speak to Christ. Christ approached him and in a great figurative act of sovereign grace healed him without the man even knowing who had been the cause of the miracle which had happened to him. He knew that it was a man called Jesus 
and in the great confusion that resulted because the miracle had taken place on the Sabbath, the man gave his forthright testimony. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. The leaders became more and more embittered against the poor man. They reviled him, we read, and they said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And when the man expressed the logical conclusion that only God could give sight to one born blind, they answered and said to him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. The volcanic fires of hatred could no longer be contained. The days of the Passover came and the arrest of Christ was arranged. And then the carnal mind that is enmity against God did its utmost against Jesus. I think that there are few people who have realized fully the horrors through which Jesus Christ passed from the time of his arrest until the time of his crucifixion. He had been proclaimed as prophet, priest, and king, and they derided him as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. As a prophet, they played a game common among Roman soldiers, putting a blindfold over his eyes, smiting him, and then crying out to him to join their game. You have an advantage over us. We have to guess. But you're a prophet, they say. Then prophesy. Who is it smote thee? Then Isaiah tells us that Christ's face was so marred that his aspect was no longer human. And even then they were not yet satisfied, they scourged him. A German preacher of the last century, Krumacher in The Suffering Savior, has set forth the terrible scene. He says, see, see, the execution of the sentence begins. The executioners fall upon the Holy One like a host of demons. They tear off his clothes, bind those hands which were ever stretched out to do good, tie them together upon his back press his gracious visage firmly against the shameful pillar. And after having bound him with ropes in such a manner that he cannot move or stir, they begin their cruel task. Oh, do not imagine that I am able to depict to you what now occurs. The scene is too horrible. My whole soul trembles and quakes. Neither wish that I should count to you the number of strokes which are now poured upon the sacred body of Emmanuel or describe the torments which, increasing with every stroke, sufficed in other cases of this kind to cause the death of the unhappy culprit before the formal execution which the scourging usually preceded. It is enough for us to know that streams of blood flow from his sacred form. His whole back appears an enormous wound. After the horrible act is finished, Another instantly follows which almost exceeds it in cruelty. The agonized sufferer is unbound from the bloody pillar, but only to be tortured afresh. The material rods have done their duty, and mental ones of the bitterest and most poignant mockery are now employed against him. Their ridicule is directed against his kingly dignity, even as it was on a former occasion against his prophetic office. A worn-out purple robe once the garment of the leader of a Roman cohort is produced. This is thrown over his back, still bleeding from every pore, while the barbarians exult aloud at this supposed witty and appropriate idea. Then they break off twigs from a long spiked thorn bush and twist them into a circlet, which is afterwards pressed upon his sacred head as a crown. 
But in order to complete the image of a mock king, they put in his hands a reed instead of a scepter, and after having thus arrayed him, they pay mock homage to him with shouts of derisive laughter. The miscreants bow with pretended reverence to the object of their scorn, bend the knee before him, and, to make the mockery complete, cry out again and again, Hail, King of the Jews! It's not long, however, before they are weary of this abominable sport and turn it into fearful seriousness. With satanic insolence, they place themselves before their ill-treated captive, make the most horrible grimaces at him, even spit in his face. In order to fill up the measure of their cruelty, they snatch the reed out of his hands and repeatedly smite him with it on the head so that the thorns pierce deeply while streams of blood flow down the face of the most gracious friend of sinners. But remember that this terrible suffering was not suffering for our sins. He had not yet been made a curse for us. That would come the next day. The blood that was thus shed in the guard room was not shed by God the Father, but by man, and not enough of it has been shed. God is leaving that for the church to shed. In the plan of God, there are yet martyrs to die for Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a baptism of persecution and suffering. Some of you who listen to these lines may yet die for Christ. We do not know what lies before us in the hatred of the world, which was ready to crucify God. For the most part, however, you will not bleed. But there will be the other sufferings that will be just as great into which we are identified in this baptism by the Holy Spirit. The more godly you live, the more you will be despised and rejected of men. It cannot be otherwise. Jesus said, if they have hated me, they will hate you also. He said it himself. You will be in the black books of some of the bishops if you stand for all of the truth and are willing to take communion with all of God's true people. There is many a man who has passed by in the distribution of earthly honors because he has sought the honor that comes from God alone. There are many names that the world can call you if you follow your Lord closely. The world can damn you with faint praise, or it can praise you with faint damns. One day, during a recess in a church meeting where I had made a strong stand for the faith, a minister came to me and said, The trouble with you is that you are a medieval obscurantist. <laughs> well, coming from him, that was more to me than if I had been given the Congressional Medal of Honor. The Lord himself said, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The head suffered for righteousness' sake while he was here on earth. The body is to suffer for righteousness' sake until he shall have put down all rule and authority and taken over the kingdom to reign. We read in the Apocalypse that during the great tribulation, the souls of the early martyrs of that time cry out to God, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? We may paraphrase the answer which was given to them. Keep quiet for a while. God has planned to have some more killed on earth. You're only the first. Just keep quiet until the full number that are to be killed as you were is completed. 
Now, this is one of the most important phases of our baptism by the Spirit into Christ, into the body of his sufferings. As he is, so are we in the world. Peter tells us that the Christian is to accept crushing gladly and is not to put up a fight for his rights. We have no rights in this world except the right of suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian servant is told even to be subject to crooked masters. And God says, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God and your grief suffering wrongfully, if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable, pleasing with God. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take these great truths to each heart. If there be Christians who suffer for righteousness' sake this day, wilt thou bless them, not only those in Russia and in China, but here in our lands, where men suffer in different ways because of faithfulness to Christ. Bless us and take thy truth to each heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus came to the world full of grace and truth, and he was despised and rejected. We must expect the same type of reaction from the world as we reflect his character and pursue godly lives. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Into Christ's Sufferings. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Into Christ's Sufferings, or simply request message number R6-10. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, God's Mercy, Our Salvation. The Bible declares that we are saved by grace through faith. And yet, deep down, many believers still feel that somehow our works, self-effort, or good moral character must contribute something to our salvation. This free booklet sets forth the glorious biblical truth that our salvation is completely rooted in God and based on His boundless mercy and free grace. Don't exchange the liberating power of the gospel for a cheap imitation. Ask for your free copy of God's Mercy, Our Salvation when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103 or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.